Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. Welcome. I am your host, Michelle Donnelly. I'm so glad you could be with me for this conversation today. Today's episode centers around raising boys and some of the unique and inherent differences that come along with that. I'm joined in this conversation by author, counselor, and director of family counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries, David Thomas. David breaks down for us some of the neurological and physical and emotional differences between boys and girls, and then how that plays out in raising our boys to embrace a biblical masculinity. And if you don't have boys, I would still encourage you to have a listen to this conversation. It is a fascinating look at the differences between men and women and how that starts even from birth. I'm partnering with Abide to bring you a new live four-week course called Broken to Brave, Breaking Bonds of the Past to Fight for Your Future. It starts on Sunday, September 19th, and in this course, we are going to talk about how to confront pain and anger from your past and use it as fuel to guide you to a future of freedom in Christ. If you'd like to join that course with me, have a look down in the show notes and click on the link to register. Also, down in the show notes, if you are new to the podcast, you'll notice a link to a quiz. It's called What's Your Loneliness Type? Loneliness is something that all of us single moms have to deal with, but the reasons why we deal with loneliness are different, and they don't necessarily have that much to do with whether or not we're in a relationship. So if you'd like to learn more about your own experience with loneliness, what's causing it, and then some of the ways out, go ahead and click on that link or head over to agapemoms.com forward slash quiz. In studying some of David's work and through this conversation, I've gained so much more of an awareness, but also an appreciation for the uniqueness that God has placed inside of my son and what it means to raise him according to that design. Here is my conversation with David Thomas. David, I'm excited that you could join me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. I want to dive right in here. Our boys, this is a different creature. <laughs> Those of us who are raising boys know from experience, but as I read your book, I was just so enlightened to the fact that my son is having a completely different life experience than I ever really could have imagined. I wanted to have you start us off with the understanding of how our boys are different in their brains, in their hormones, and how then that causes them to experience life differently. Yes. I, I don't think you could have said it any better. A different creature. Like there's our umbrella catch-all statement that I think says so much. And I love the humility and in, in how you even ask that. Like I love the awareness. And I would so encourage moms who are listening to really, as best you can, posture yourself in that place of just, 
I did not grow up in that skin in the exact same way I am saying to myself on a consistent basis about my oldest born child as a daughter. It's just like, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I had no idea when she was passing through mid-adolescence what it was like to be a teenage girl, to live in that skin, to face all the things, to be bombarded by those cultural messages. But I sure want to understand as much as I can. And so I love the way you even asked that. And I think that posture allows us to think about this different creature and all these differences we'll talk about in in really important, strategic, intentional ways. And to respond to your question, I think it's from the time the the race begins, I talk about from the time the gun is fired and the race begins, like those differences are noticeable. Everything Mm -hmm. from think about when, for anyone listening, you went for a pediatric visit with and, you know, young child at the six month, 12 month, 18 month visits, and they're asking those questions and they start asking about how many words are they saying? You know, what we know, what the research tells us time and time again, and she's going to have two to three times the words that he does. And mm. let that be our first reminder again of her vocabulary is more expansive. Thus, her emotional vocabulary is going to be more expansive. Her capacity to articulate her experience is going to look different. And that's not to say Every single living, breathing girl can do that well, and every boy struggles. It's simply to say a majority of boys are going to have fewer words and a more limited emotional vocabulary. And so that's one piece and component. I talk a lot in terms of his biology and, and you know neurological makeup, how boys have what I call three strikes against them from the very beginning on through. And that first strike is that we know the female brain secretes more serotonin which is directly related to impulse control. So his female counterparts have advanced abilities to regulate themselves, regulate their bodies, their emotions, all those things in ways he simply can't do in the same way. Then I talk about strike two is that a little girl's frontal lobes develop and grow at an earlier stage. And our frontal lobes, you know, do a lot of important things. They inform our executive decisions. And so, you know, in summary, it's why most girls, not all girls, but most girls tend to think first and then act second. Boys tend to do the opposite. They tend mm. to act first and then think. Sometimes on the way to the ER, like maybe I shouldn't have ridden my bike off that or mm-hmm. <laughs> off that place. But so much of what he's doing in life is just moving through life, getting from point A to point B, not always thinking through those steps. Boys are very action-oriented creatures. Strike three is that we know that the brainstem in the male houses more spinal fluid, which is one more part of what makes him so physical, so active, that he is this creature who is always in motion. And I think to the degree that we acknowledge some of those basic differences on the mm-hmm. front fact, we start to structure his world differently. I think we engage him differently. We discipline him differently. We affirm him differently. We coach him differently. It affects so much, you know, and I can go on and on. We know that you know, the occipital lobe in a little girl's brain also grows earlier, develops. And that's a part of what gives you all as females that remarkable ability to multitask. You mm. can take so much sensory data, your capacity to multitask is extraordinary. We as males, generally speaking, are more singularly focused creatures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I challenge a lot of moms, like when you throw three or four instructions or directives, his way of things to do, and you notice he only does one or maybe two or maybe none, it could be that this singularly focused creature is lost in too much data, too much information, Mm -hmm. too much options. So 
to the degree, again, that I think we lean into that understanding of, now I love your words, this is a different creature. And we've got to think about the unique way God hardwired him. I think it can affect the whole game of, of parenting and our experience with him. I think it's poignant too that you said that these are strikes against our boys. And we'll touch on this later, but that the fact is our culture and our public education system is not structured in such a way that encourages our boys to grow in the ways that they are wired. If we look also too, though, at how God has designed them to be uniquely masculine and how that journey looks quite different as well as their moving through the various stages of maturity. I think understanding that is important as well. Masculinity is also something that's not really paraded in our culture as something to be proud of. And I think I've seen in you know the last several decades how that's grown. And understanding that our boys do have a unique gift of masculinity that God has created can help us to shape that in a way that God designed and away from the toxic masculinity that absolutely most of us don't want to see our sons grow into. Can you help us understand also the the stages of a boy's development and how his masculinity takes shape through those? I'd love to. And and I would even say first, I think you you and I are on a mission to do some of the same things. I'm so excited about these kind of conversations where we can talk about who he is, how best steward these amazing gifts we've been given of boys so that the outcome, the end result could look so different than so much of what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Adult men in the world who I think are, you know, a a really terrible example of healthy masculinity. And and we could camp out in just that space and talk about all of that. But I love Mm -hmm. that we can have a conversation about the good. Like, what can we be doing? to raise up a, a generation of boys um, who can live out a healthy definition of masculinity because mm-hmm. and we started with a clear understanding of their hardwiring. So I, I had a, an opportunity, really a privilege years ago to write a book with a dear friend of mine, Stephen James. We wrote a book called Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys. And the first third of that book is nothing but development. And We very intentionally started the book there because I don't think any other conversation we had beyond like a boy's relationship with his mom, boy's Mm -hmm. relationship with school, you know, all those things make any sense unless we're allowing development to be the backdrop to all of those conversations. So we break down boy development into five stages, and that's not the right way or the only way to do it. It's just the way that made the most sense to us, kind of understand what he's moving through, what that means for us as adults in his world in each of those stages in terms of stewarding him toward his masculinity. So I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version. We can yes. talk about any of them that you want. Yeah. Stage one, I call the explorer. And that's roughly boys between birth and four. And that little guy is everything the name says. Like he's curious, he's moving, all the things we just discussed and exploring the world in really remarkable, exciting ways. The three to four space, I will say, just as a side note, is a really complicated stretch of development. In fact, one of the things I do in my work as a therapist, I do a lot of what we call parent consultations. And it's where I just come together with parents to talk about what they're observing in the season. And we kind of create a to-do list out of that of things to best support him. And I can't tell you the number of consultations I do with parents of three to four-year-old boys because it's a complicated stretch. And There's a lot to say, but one of the things I'd say to any parent listening with a boy in that space who might be struggling or really frustrated is that he has a lot of 
developmental needs, strong developmental needs like independence. Think about how often you hear boys in that space saying things like, I can buckle myself. And yet he can't really buckle himself. <laughs> all these desires that he can't back up with his skills. So mm. his skills are outpaced in this stage in ways they won't be in the same way going forward. So it can drive a real frustration. I, I'm always challenging parents. We talk about the terrible twos. Generally speaking, I don't think the twos are so terrible with boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They struggle more, but I think three to four can be a more complicated space for him developmentally. So that's part of what's at play. Stage two, which is roughly five to eight years of age, is what I call the lover stage. And I'll be honest with you, if I could freeze a boy anywhere in his development, I would freeze him right here. I like, think a I lot of moms him. agree. <laughs> why I even gave it that name, you know, boys are really tender in this moment. They are wide open in ways they haven't been before and won't necessarily be in the same ways after. And so getting access to him physically, emotionally, on so many levels, it's just an easier journey in the space. And um, I had a mom one time say to me, she was talking about her six-year-old boy, she goes, it's like a snuggly puppy right now, you know, and it's like, yes, he does love a snuggly puppy. And yes. so in the next stage, not so snugly puppy, you know, there's complicated <laughs> things going on, but it is to say, I think boys are full of some of their best stuff in this moment. And I challenge any parent who has a boy in that space to do your best to really enjoy him. Because again, there are a lot of great things at play. It's not to say it doesn't have its struggles. It does. Every stage has unique struggles, but some really neat things are happening. I always say, I do a lot of in-services in schools, and it's super common to find kindergarten and first grade teachers who've been teaching for 25, 30, 35, 40 years. And I think, of course, you can stay in the profession so long with kids in that space because mm-hmm. there's, there's just a tenderness at that mm-hmm. point I think that isn't present in the same ways in other places. Mm-hmm. So stage three is roughly nine to 12. That's the individual stage. This is what we refer to as the second set of formative years. And there's some really important things going on in his emotional and social development in particular. And he is beginning what I call the individuating journey, which we can talk more about what that means for boys and moms going forward. But it's a very important part of his development and growth and masculinity. And so he is searching for masculinity on an accelerated pace at this point. You know, his We also call this stretch the age of awareness. So he's as aware of what's going on around him as he's ever been. His antenna's as Mm -hmm. high. You know, I always say I could ask any boy in stage three, who's the most athletic guy in your grade? Or who's the funniest guy in your grade? He could tell me like that. Like he doesn't Mm -hmm. have to think, he doesn't have to ponder that for a long period of time. His antenna is high to the social hierarchy and where he feels like he fits within that. Mm -hmm. So a lot going on in that space. Stage four, boys roughly 13 to 17, I call the wanderer stage. And about every developmental theorist would say this is the most complicated stretch of a boy's development. Some say it's the worst episode of a boy's life. Not one of the most, the most. Mm-hmm. There's really not even a close second. And, and there again, I don't think we could lean in far enough to acknowledge that. And I sit with a lot of parents. I do a lot of consultations with parents of 13, 14 year old boys too, who are tempted to make determinations about who he's going to be based on what they're seeing. You know, statements like he is never going to, or I'm so fearful in 10 years he's going to. And Mm -hmm. I'm always quick to say, let's not make any determinations about all of who he's going to be based on who he is right now, because he's in the worst episode. And 
you know, I invite parents to think back on their own development. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go down in history as who I was at 14. No. <laughs> no one have ever said, wow, I think that guy will be a therapist someday. No one. And so <laughs> we're all growing and developing. And that's a super complicated stretch of it right there. And then stage five. So here's some good news following that harder news. Stage five is another one of my favorite stages. It's 18 into the mid-20s. And that's important to note because most developmental theorists would agree adolescence ends for a girl somewhere around 19 to 20 and for a boy somewhere around 23 to 25, 23 to 25. So we have to lengthen the developmental timeline for him differently. And I think that's one of many mistakes we make with boys. You know, we're sending them out in the world at 19 saying, go be a young adult. And at 22, go be a grown up. Mm he's not done with adolescence yet. And so Mm. we couldn't be intentional enough in those 18 to 20 something years thinking, coaching him and thinking with him, brainstorming with him about internships and jobs and practicums and mentoring and so many things that he's needing as he's finishing out development. But in that warrior stage, he is developing abstract thinking. He's able to see the world differently. We get to experience relationship with him differently. There are some really neat things happening. In fact, I sit with a lot of parents of boys in this stage in tears who would say, I, I don't know when I've ever enjoyed him more. And now it's time to send him off. You know, it's all hard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm loving this rich relationship we're experiencing on a new level and it's time to launch him. But mm-hmm. what's key about that, that I'd say in closing to the stages is as we launch him, we're not stopping being a parent at that point. And I know everybody knows that. I just want to remind you of that. Like we're just moving into a different stage. We're mm-hmm. moving into a new role in our parenting, but we're not done. And, and boys still need us desperately in that space. Mm-hmm. We just want to move into that coaching consultant role, role at that point in his development. Hopefully he's postured, developed, prepared in a way that we can move more into that. But mm-hmm. we're not stopping being parents at that point. We're just moving into a new season. Mm-hmm. He is I think what's interesting about the stages there, though, is I think culturally we have this understanding that we should be pushing our boys out very quickly, that they need to get out from behind the apron strings and they need to be pushed out on their own. And from what I'm understanding from what you're saying, we actually should lengthen our understanding of the launch process with our boys, have a lot more patience as they're navigating their world. And as I understand it, if they have less words less understanding of what their emotions are as they're processing these big emotions and they're having these testosterone surges and all these things that are impacting their ability to process what's happening around them. We have to be so much more intentional about stepping side by side with them through these various stages and recognize that when we do see something that appears to be a setback, especially if we have daughters to compare this against that Really, we should just understand that this is a place where we can press in to give him some more coaching. I know, though, that trauma impacts this process, though, pretty significantly. So as it comes to these stages of development, how do we start to see a trauma such as a loss of a parent, a divorce, some kind of abuse that might happen? How does that shift this developmental process? Does it delay our sons? Can we catch them up? How does how does that all play out? That's a great question. And you are 100% correct that it does slow the process down. And depending on the trauma and depending on the boy and depending on the level of support, it can halt their emotional development. Like it can move from slowing down to a halt. Mm. 
The good news being, if it slows down, even if it stops, we can jumpstart that process again. Mm-hmm. But it's typically not something that just instinctively happens. It's going to take some support. It's going to take some pressing and some leaning in. And so I would, for any parent listening who has navigated that exact transition or trauma or something different to lock into me saying, we can always jumpstart that again. I mean, I've, I've sat with parents who are adults who they got clearly stuck in their development somewhere along the way. I've sat with 45-year-old men who I think emotionally, you're probably still hovering around 22 to 23. I was with a dad a few weeks ago and I was thinking in my mind, like, you're still operating like you're living in the fraternity house. And mm-hmm. it's time to be a grown-up at this point. But he got halted somewhere in his emotional development. That slowdown process happened in a way that there weren't attentive adults supportive adults around to help jumpstart that process again, but it absolutely can happen. And to the degree that we press in early with that good support, the slowing down typically takes less time and the speeding back up happens sooner. So I'm such an advocate of let's press in sooner than later. Mm, That's very hopeful though, what you just said. I think sometimes we look at the circumstances we're in and say, oh no, our kids are doomed. And how are we going to catch them back up? David, what are some things that we as moms might be doing, though, that we think are supporting our sons that are actually holding them back from getting what they need to move forward? Yeah, I would say I'll answer that question by taking one step back and say that I think moms play such a foundational relationship in a boy's life. And I want to draw attention to that because I think we have for quite some time, and I think even more so in Christian culture, potentially given so much attention to how much a boy needs his dad, how much a boy needs males in his life, how important that relationship is, that I think we have dismissed the significance of his relationship with his mom. And I am all about putting the spotlight back on them because I just don't want to draw attention away. It's not one is more important than the other. Both relationships have importance. There is a need, a unique need that exists in those different relationships. And so I want to say to moms, your relationship throughout development, even in that individuating stage that we talked about a few minutes ago, there is a separating out. And and I know moms know this, and let's just name that for what it is. There is a separating out as he moves toward all things masculine, no different than my daughter did some separating out with me as she's moving toward all things feminine in her feminine development, just as in his masculine development. It doesn't mean my daughter stopped having a relationship with me or needing me. It doesn't mean your sons will stop having a relationship or needing you. The need still exists. It just looks different. Just as we talked about in the warrior stage, parenting is going to just look different in that stage. So I would say naming that, acknowledging that, and I would add to that list for moms, having a place to process what that's like is of great importance. Because I think if you can't name it, if you can't acknowledge it, you may unconsciously be roadblocking that in some ways because it often doesn't feel great when our kids are pulling away and moving toward mm-hmm. independence. And if I'm trying to pull them back in with pulling away, that push and pull never is fruitful in the relationship between mm-hmm. parents and kids. And so if if every parent has a place to process that with a safe friend, with a counselor, in some context where you can get some honest feedback about what may be difficult to see yourself, that's true for every one of us. We all have blind spots. But an objective person, you trust their voice. It's going to speak the truth and love to you. I think it really can bless your relationship with your son. Mm-hmm. 
And what else happens is I'm working through the different emotions and the safety of that relationship rather than working that out. on That's one of the things that I think can happen. Because what I what I have observed happening is when moms don't have enough of a safe space to aim at, acknowledge that, and process that, not only does it create a push and pull, which I think boys resist, but I think it creates additional needs. He feels a sense of I need to think about the age old saying of you know, in the face of losing a father through divorce or death or death, that you know many boys grow up hearing you're now the man of the house, and we all know that's not a helpful message. It's not a healthy message. He's thinking responsibility that isn't his. It's saying, be a grown up and you're a kid. And so if boys feel those needs from their mom, it's not only I need to be a grown up, I need to be a, a pseudo spouse as well. And that's not ever his role or a role that I know a mom would want a boy to feel like he has to step into. So mm-hmm. having a place to process all that. I would last, another thing maybe to add to the to-do list is, and this is hard, I think, to execute, easy to believe and hard to execute is. We want to always be prioritizing his character over his happiness. And so to the very question you ask about, you know, if, if we've navigated this significant transition or trauma and we are concerned, he's slowing down in his emotional development. He needs some support. Say we engage counseling. You know, we laugh and say here in our practice, rarely does an adolescent boy walk through the front door of this house skipping and excited like I'm so I think I laughingly say, I think counseling for adolescent boys can feel a bit like a colonoscopy, something I should do and attending to my overall health, but I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it. It's invasive. I don't want to go through the process, you know, all those things. And yet I know it's good for my health. It's a Mm -hmm. decision for my overall health. And so prioritizing his character over his happiness could be, you know, I'm saying, I want to go to counseling. I want to talk about, you know, or I don't have that conversation, whatever it may be, but knowing for his greater good, that's important to do. And that could apply to so many moments. Like, I don't want to go to youth group. I don't want to go to the sports practice. I don't want to, whatever it may be. And we're parenting with a long view of understanding. I'm going to prioritize his character over his happiness. This is good for his overall health, whatever that circumstance may be. I love what you just said about the long view, because I think when we look at our kids' lives and if we part it out into every individual instance, means something tremendous then we start to parent from fear that if we see our son pulling away from us, we may, whether consciously or unconsciously, start to key into, well, this is like when my ex pulled away from me and start to rope that kid in harder. And that might just be our natural bent as mothers anyway that we have to fight against. But when there's another sort of triggering factor in there and we allow that fear to put itself in the driver's seat in the way that we parent our sons. That's where a lot of this friction can happen. But that if, as you said, we've got other people to process this with, that we can normalize some of what's happening. We don't look at every individual instance as an indication of the way the future is going to be. Then there's just such a, such an ability to ride with those things and to start to lean on God really, because he loves that kid more than we do. Absolutely. I love that. I couldn't agree more. I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go, and it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And I've found that having the combination of 
Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. David, when it comes to their development, and we talked a little bit about, you know, a mom's role, the things that a boy does get from his mother. You did mention, though, for example, that each a mother and a father does have a role. Now, with moms who are listening, where the father is either disengaged or he's not available, not present at all, your book mentions quite a bit the role of mentors and how our sons can still gain some of that healthy masculine influence through mentors. Though I know for a lot of women I've talked to, finding a mentor is difficult and then knowing how to teach them how to engage with our sons is a challenge as well. What guidance do you have when it comes to that subject? I do believe strongly in that. It's part of why I wrote so much around it. And in fact, in the section on development, I talk about in stage four and stage five, how boys will begin to crave what I call a third parent. Mm. And not literally a third parent, but another healthy adult who is interested, invested, and supportive. And so I I challenge everyone listening right now, think on from your high school years through college, young adult years. I have a feeling every one of us could name at least three other individuals who we felt met that criteria. Like I think about a high school English teacher of mine. I love this woman so much. I think about a particular coach. I think about a campus minister in college. Like these different adults who took an interest in me mm-hmm. and voice was loud to me because I felt that all those things, the investment, the support. And so that's some of what I mean when I say craving that third parent and the natural hunger that's there. And for some boys, I think they'll find their way to that more naturally, more instinctive and seek that out even on their own. For others, I think we have to um, be a little more intentional in our process of kind of ushering them toward those voices. And it could be a range of things. It could be a a teacher, a coach, an uncle, a grandfather, a best friend's father. And I I would say to your question, I don't think it's always easy, but I would say I do think it's worth the priority. I think it's so of such great importance because I think the need is so strong. And I think even back to what we talked about on the front side, it's part of that acknowledgement of I did not grow up in the skin that you're living in. And so I want you to always have access to voices of people that I trust that did, that you could ask any question to, who are going to share part of their life story with you that I think is needed and meaningful and nourishing. And so I believe in it so strongly that I would say, keep it in the top five list of priorities as he goes forward. And I think too, that could sound unique to the circumstances that you and I are talking around of a single parent, but I believe in it every bit as much. Mm-hmm. In my own journey, I was in the house with my sons and I want other men who are speaking into their lives because what I know happens for every kid in adolescence is, you know, the voice of parents gets softer. The voices of their peers and other adults gets louder. And our, mm-hmm. our tendency as parents in, that, in that, those moments is to talk louder and to talk more, neither of which I think are effective strategies. You know, I think <laughs> we want to tune out more. So, In those seasons where I could feel that happening in my own journey, I began praying more than I've ever prayed for those other voices. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you one other practical strategy I employed that I would recommend? 
you know, I vividly remember the first time it started happening. My sons were in eighth grade at the time, and they had this really awesome, amazing assistant coach who was in his mid-20s. And I love the guy. I mean, he was unbelievable. And he was, you know, fresh out of grad school and in his first job at that point. And I remember observing it from the sidelines, like just how he was capturing their attention. And I had this practice for years where I would drive to uh, Chipotle. I would budget $100 a year and I'd drive to Chipotle and get 10 $10 gift cards and keep them in my glove compartment. And periodically when I would see this guy or one of the many other men, youth pastors, coaches, D group leaders who played a significant role in my son's life, I would write him a handwritten note and I'd tuck a card in there because what man does not love a burrito? And so (laughs) it's my way, very small way of just saying, I see you, Mm -hmm. I acknowledge the role you play in the life of my son. And I'm incredibly grateful. It was that simple. And it was just something that kept me praying in that direction, something that kept me grateful Mm -hmm. for this gift that my sons were needing that I couldn't offer in the same way. So I really do want moms to hear me say that. I don't think it's unique to that circumstance. I think it's true for every boy to whatever degree his dad is involved and invested that I just think that need is is great for other adults. It's part of the wisdom of that age old saying of it takes a village Mm -hmm. and it really does. And every year at Christmas, I would have each of my kids, I would ask them like, who is one adult in your life who is invested uniquely and deeply in you. And then we as a family would buy a specific Christmas gift for that person. You know, maybe it was a gift card to a restaurant they loved or a shop they loved or something they were wanting. And we all wrote a handwritten note to them because I want those adults to see like, I value this so much. I value the importance of this. I know it. I write about it. I teach about it. I believe in it so strongly. And I am incredibly grateful that you would acknowledge the significance of your voice and your presence in my kids' lives in a way where I just want to say a small thank you in this way. So mm-hmm. be putting that in, be honoring those people when you see it happen. I think that's empowering what you're saying, though, that this need for mentors does not just exist because we are in single parent households, because we're leading a single parent household, that this is something our children would need no matter what. So we don't have to feel shortchanged that we have to go on this mission to search for these people because we should do that anyway. And if our children are seeking that additional voice, then we have the choice whether or not we allow our children to choose who that is or we choose who that is. And being engaged in that process is kind of an adventure, I think, actually, because I look for these individuals then who can teach my sons to, or my son to do certain things, whether it's grill a burger or clean up, you know, oil changes, you know, that kind of stuff that I'm not, I'm not going to teach him how to do, but that men and boys engage sometimes in the most unique conversations by doing those side-by-side things. And that's just, a, that's different than the way moms do it sometimes that we're so much more of like, let's sit down and have a chat together, <laughs> but it's, it's allowing our, our boys to experience that healthy masculinity and they, they would need it anyway. So we don't have to feel like, oh man, this is one more thing on my plate. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I say this is a last thought? I yeah. just thought of as you were sharing that. I was just yesterday um, sitting with a mom who has a 15-year-old son. She's a single mom. And the adult male that has her son's attention in the strongest way right now is his guitar teacher. Mm-hmm. And she said, I pulled him aside the other day and said, I walked by the room and I noticed there had been no music going for a while and yeah. she hear them talking she was like I didn't listen in um but she said 
I wanted him to know that when he leaves our house, I noticed a difference in my son. Mm. And I wanted him to know if they don't play the guitar for more than 10 to 15 minutes, I'm mm. happy to pay for the hour because I believe the other 45 minutes is good life stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love that. I mean, she's saying I could care the less whether I hear music coming out of that room or not. Yes. It speaks to the very thing you named. It's like he was talking openly. The more they were kind of fumbling around on the guitar and then yes. it just a great conversation. Then maybe they played a little more music. Mm-hmm. All of what was happening in that time was this mentoring we were talking about mm-hmm. that is of such importance. So mm-hmm. thank you for letting me mm-hmm. share that Yeah, no, actually, I love that you brought that up because my son had a similar experience with a piano teacher. And it was actually an incentive because I said, well, you know, you guys can hang out and spend some time together. But if you also, you know, are really attentive and, and respect him, then you guys could play foosball afterwards. And so we would clip out that last like 10 to 15 minutes of his lesson <laughs> for them to play foosball together. And it was just a sweet, manly bonding time <laughs> between the oh, two of them. Good for you. <laughs> good for you. So David, at the early outset of the episode, though, we did touch on the fact that when it comes to culture and it comes to the school system that our sons are trying to navigate, that there's things that are just not set up for them, but then also might just be somewhat antagonistic to their development of their masculinity. As moms, how can we help our sons to navigate this educational system, for example, when sit down and learn is just not the way that they're wired? Yeah. And I think it can start that early. I think, you know, as boys jump into the elementary experience in our country, you know, if if your son is in the public or private school setting, we use what we call the compulsory model. It's basically this eight to three model. And it's going to require him to do a lot of sitting still and paying attention. And if I had talked in detail all through the timeline of development, never would I have I said his strong suits are sitting still and paying attention. And Mm -hmm. Even the verbal piece we talked about, like that environment pulls heavily on verbal and written expression heavily, which generally speaking, are going to be more her strengths than his. So we could talk at length about the challenges, unique challenges I think he'll come up against. The current stats would tell us that 90% of behavioral problems in school settings are boys, 90%. Mm-hmm. It's just so telling. And so mm-hmm. I don't. This is going to sound hopeless, but stay with me. I don't have a lot of hope that we are going to one day decide we're going to rework that whole system. Maybe Mm -hmm. we will. I would love that if we did do a lot of revising within that space that I think could benefit boys and and not just those layers. There are a lot of layers that I'd love to best. What I feel hopeful about is how often I and other individuals who've written in the space get an opportunity to be with educators. How many times I'm sitting in schools who are wanting to do in-services strictly around how can we create a more boy-friendly environment? How can we make this a more inviting space for him to learn and grow and develop? And so that excites me greatly. And I love, I think back to years ago, I was working with a single mom, amazing, intentional single mom. And she and two of her best friends who are also single parents said, you know what? We're going to run for leadership on the PTO. We're going to be the change we want to see. That famous saying we all know. And one of them ran for president, one of them ran for vice president, one of them ran for secretary. Like they were filling all the offices, which, you know, I laughed and, and with the mom, she's like, the competition's really not state because no one really wants that job. It's hard. And <laughs> <laughs> Don't act like I won the Olympics. But she said, we're rolling up our sleeves and we're going to teachers in that setting and saying, where do you need us? She called herself crowd control. Where can I be crowd control in this building that is an extra set of hands so that you could offer 
more experiential learning in this place that might work better for the boys? Where could I be crowd control so that you could do more outdoor learning? Where could I? And I just thought, that's just brilliant. Like mm-hmm. if the system's not going to change, we could sit around and complain about that for endless amounts of times or we can be the change we want to see. And I had such respect and admiration for those moms who were like, we're going to roll our sleeves up. We're going to get busy. We're going to figure out strategic, creative ways. One of them created a sign-up list, you know, where they were figuring out how they could rotate in all the parents in the space to be this, what they call crowd control, extra set of hands to allow for some small differences throughout the day. I would also say to that too, part of our journey in competing with what's going on in these different systems where our son's going to operate is helping him develop critical thinking. I just think that's so vital. And it even goes all the way back to the conversation you and I shared on the front side about toxic masculinity. Like I very much want us to be breaking apart what boys are seeing in the media, images and professional sports and entertainment and politics and all these spaces and asking questions like, you know, how would you describe that person as a leader? Where are they using their platform for good? Where are they lining up with how Christ defines what it means to be a man in this world versus how the world defines what it means to be a man? You know, just Mm -hmm. looking for opportunities there again, looking for context where our boys could be with mentors who are helping ask those questions and helping them think through and make connections in those useful ways where other voices are adding to this rich building of critical thinking that we want to see happening with boys where they're developing a discernment. And I think defining it first and then learning to live differently as part of the wisdom of that, you know, what it means for all of us as believers to be in this world and not of it. In this world, these are the context where our sons are going to operate, but they don't have to be of those spaces. They can be different in those spaces. That's what we want to be about as believing parents. Mm, I love what you just said. They can be different in those spaces. And I think one of the really powerful things for our boys is to teach them not to apologize for the struggles that they might have because they are boys. So if they struggle to sit still in class, they should not be sheepish about asking for help if they need to get up and stand in the back. I know a lot of my son's teachers have been very open to flexible seating or standing in the back, taking a brain break, something like that. So whereas I might not be able to be the PTO president, (laughs) I can at least teach my son that, yes, this is something you may just struggle with, but you can get help. Your teacher wants to help you. And being just that intentional about engaging with the, you know, the principal, the teacher, the school psychologist, like whomever the people are involved so that our sons can start to feel that they're not abnormal for having these needs and for struggling in this way, but that there are ways to work around it and just coming up with those creative solutions with them individually or with their teachers and just teaching them as they grow. First, you advocate for them, but then teaching them how to advocate for themselves. A hundred percent. And I'm still doing it today as a middle-aged man myself. Every time I show up at a school or a church to speak, I'm going to say to them, can I wear a headset? Because if I'm required to stand still behind a microphone, this is just never going to go well for anybody here. Like I <laughs> move all over the stage, talking with my hands. I can't even hold a mic. Like mm. the acknowledgement is we're saying like, that's a part of my hardwiring. I too am wired for movement. And so can I wear a headset? That's something I'm going to need so that I can move all about this space in the time we're going to share together. So I love that. Yes. Equipping really them those ways of understanding. This is how I'm hardwired. How can I ask for help? So good. 
David, I appreciate all of your insight into how we can encourage our boys and how we can walk with them as they are navigating this world of manhood and masculinity. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question, and that is if there was just one thing that you wanted a single mom to know, what would it be? Mm, Great question. I would want them to know how incredibly important their voice is. I would want them to know that they have some unique challenges within this relationship that they are absolutely equipped for. And years ago, I read, decades ago, I read a book called The Art of Family written by a woman named Gina Bria. And she defined motherhood in this way. I think it's one of the best definitions I've heard in my life. She said, the work of mothering a son is mostly about stepping aside with precise timing. She said, I want my sons to learn from me that they are free to be rooted in home and still be abroad in the world as men. And I love that language so much. I could have never said it that way. Like, that's, I think, what we want for every boy to feel the freedom to be rooted in home and still be abroad in the world as men. And I think it speaks to so many of the themes we've talked around, the importance of your relationship and your voice, inviting and praying in and ushering in mentors and other voices creating safety for them at home, supporting them as they're individuating and separating out all those things. So I would say, hold on to that definition as best you can. I think there's great guidance for all of us as we love and steward and support the boys we love. And -hmm. thank you again for giving me a chance to be here today. I've loved this conversation. I'm really, really grateful for the life-giving work you're doing. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. I'm so glad that you could be here. For listeners who want to know more about your resources and how they can follow along with you, can you tell them how they can do that? The easiest way would be jump on our website is raisingboysandgirls.com, raisingboysandgirls.com. And it'll link you to all of the books we've written, our podcast. We're in our third season of a podcast right now called Raising Boys and Girls. Um, Information about Daystar, where I work, like pretty much everything is housed in that space. So I'd say that'd be a good starting point. Terrific. And I will include links in the show notes to make it easy for the listeners to find you all. But thank you again so much, David. So life-giving. Appreciate it. It's great to be with you. If you enjoyed this conversation with David, I've got a couple others that I would recommend for you. First is episode 83, talking to your kids about sex solutions for single moms with Dr. Danny Huerta. Also check out episode 80, Fight for Joy, Raising Your Kids with a Legacy of Faith with Rhonda Stoppy. As we wrap up the conversation, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of resources available for you in the show notes. The first is our guided scripture meditation that goes along with each and every episode that you can find at the Agape Moms YouTube channel. Also, there's a link there to follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Agape Moms and to join the private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Lastly, if you'd like to spend some time reflecting in prayer on what you've learned in this episode, check out the link for our free podcast pages, journaling pages. Thanks for spending time with me today. I'm praying for you and that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.